0: A young guy playing guitar, playing syncopated songs in church, in a white church, in 1957. Believe me, they weren't having any of that. I know it was racism, but at the time, their excuse for not allowing me to make that music was that it was the devil's music.
1: Hello, I'm John J. Thompson. The music community lost another legend recently when gospel rock pioneer Mylon LeFevre passed away just a few weeks shy of his 79th birthday. Mylon was a larger than life kind of figure, especially to people like me. And while he had been retired from the concert stage for many years, the work he did, the songs he wrote, The ringing he left in many of our ears is more than enough justification for us to etch his name in the pew here in the back of the True Tunes Sanctuary. I had a chance to catch up with Milan a couple of years ago when I was working on the Electric Jesus film. I had been reaching out through his website and getting no response when I turned to his son-in-law, my old friend Peter Furler from the Newsboys. Pete reached out to his wife's dad and vouched for me, and within a couple of hours, my phone rang. He'd be happy to chat. How soon would I be available? We haven't released this interview because the sonic quality wasn't great and I hoped that I might be able to set up another shot at getting a higher quality recording with Mylan. but Bruce has been able to give this recording some extra TLC and the content is just too good not to share. This won't sound like most of our shows. For instance, you won't hear very much from me. Once we started talking, Milan just rolled, and I rarely felt like interjecting a thing. This is really more like Mylon in his own words. We're just stepping into Milan's world.
2: Count the cost and chart your courses, and return and take my hand, because today I ship is safe. and we can make it they will decide
0: in 1944 you know rock and roll started happening really in the 50s I was about 12 when I saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show and he was a southern boy you know poor kid and that you could relate to and of course little Richard was from Georgia I'm from Atlanta the people that were in who influenced me in the beginning musically were Little Richard and Elvis and Jerry Lee, of course. These are all Southern boys, but the one that influenced me the most is probably Chuck Berry, because he wrote the songs. And Little Richard did too. Back in the day, radio was either black or white. And unfortunately, so was the world in the South when I was a kid. You went to a white school or a black school, you went to a white church or a black church, you listened to white radio or black radio, but they didn't play black people on white radio and they didn't play white people on black radio. So the bottom line is, if you heard Little Richard sing Long Tall Sally in 1956 or 57, and then Pat Boone sung it on the white station, Pat Boone put on his white books, you know, Pat's a friend of mine, I love Pat. He's a good guy. But if you've ever heard Little Richard sing Long Tall Sally and then Pat Boone, You could hear one of them, and you could feel one of them. (laughs) But I wanted to make music that you could hear and feel, not just hear. We now refer to that as music that was more syncopated. You wrote songs, the music had more, not funk, it wasn't funk back in the day, it was just more rhythm and blues, it was more gospel. But white people just didn't have it, I'm sorry, that wasn't available to a lot of the people who didn't appreciate that. And unfortunately, when you started writing songs, I couldn't play a piano at the time, I played guitar. And uh, so when I wrote a song at 12, 13, 14 years old, when I started writing songs, I could only express them with my, the acts that, that I was good enough to play it. And a young guy playing guitar, playing, syncopated songs in church, in a white church, in 1957. Believe me, they weren't having any of that. And the excuse was, I mean, I now know it was racism, but at the time, I didn't know because their excuse for not allowing me to make that music was that it was the devil's music. But I noticed that if you went with the youth group to the roller skating rink, and you were allowed to skate around the rink as long as uh, Crosby was singing, or... You know some white guy but if little richard came over, all our youth group had to go sit down because that was the devil's music it took me years later to figure out that the devil's music was always black in that part of the world and there was nothing i could do about that the dreams i had were all in technicolor and my dad wasn't a racist so i was raised completely different if you made music and it was good music music's not Music's not black or white, it's just good or bad, and if it's bad, I don't care if you're white, it's bad, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, so I didn't dislike Pat Boone's music, he would go platinum, he would go gold, but Little Richard wouldn't get paid.
2: How well I can remember those good old days back home, and how the friends would gather when revival time would come, you'd hear them out for miles and miles around and seems that i could almost see the holy ghost come down give me that old time religion give me that old time religion give me that old time religion. religion it's
0: good enough for me i was a songwriter before i was a musician i didn't i never was that good a musician i always had musicians that were better than i was i held a guitar but it was more like a prop I didn't play it well enough you know i had eight or ten chords enough to write a song with but um i couldn't play lead guitar for a million dollars but the process of sharing a dream the process of being the first person on the earth to hear a song god's the creator and if he allowed you out of the seven billion people to hear something the first time And you took that dream and you showed it to your buddies, and they all gathered around, and everybody played what they brought to the table. And uh, somebody liked it enough to put it on the radio. That was a miracle. That was not a bunch of guys trying to make some money or become famous. The first time I wrote a song, I sat with my guitar, and when I played it and it started to make sense, I thought, for the first time, something that's been going on in here I can now share it with somebody, even though my mom was usually the only one that would listen, you know, (laughs) uh, at 13 or 14. I had been in bands, but mostly with my parents in a gospel group. And so I had to do something about the songs and putting a band together was, it was like protecting your children. It was a defense mechanism because I couldn't read or write music. I couldn't write them down. I couldn't write the music. And so when somebody, when I would pay somebody to do that, it would be uh, really corny. When I would hear their finished version of it, I would think that's not my dream, man. That's not what I heard. The only way that I could tell you what I heard was to get my guitar playing buddy and say, play this. Well, now you can offer everything this world has got to trade.
2: You can offer everything that man has ever made. You can offer everything that your eyes can see. But for what I found at Calvary, there's nothing you can offer me. Nothing you can offer me. Nothing you can offer me. What I found down on my knees, there's nothing you can offer me. Nothing you can offer me. Nothing you can offer me. What I found at Calvary, there's nothing you can offer
0: me. I was in the Army, and uh, my mom invited me to come to the Quartet Convention. She had, uh, there was this thing called the Gospel Quartet Convention. It was in Memphis, Tennessee, Ellis Auditorium, and it filled up for the Quartet Convention, which was like three days and nights of singing. And Elvis loved that stuff, and it was in his hometown, Memphis. And, you know, I went every year with my parents, because I wrote songs that my parents sung, and since they had a studio, I was learning to produce and learning to arrange and all the stuff you have to learn to do. So mom said, if you can get a pass, come over. So I hitchhiked to Memphis and uh, I had written this song that she really liked and nobody had heard it but mom, she said, get your daddy's guitar and come on. And I've been hitchhiking all night and all day. I got rained on, man, it was, it was October, it was winter, it was cold. 600 miles I hitchhiked in 20 I guess 26 took me 26 hours to get there and uh, I hadn't had any sleep except in semis and people let me go to sleep you know Anyway, I went out there Elvis was was recording the tunes he was gonna do an album he was gonna do a gospel album and so he had his producer Felton Jarvis Uh, Colonel Tom built him a room over on the side of the stage and it had a big glass wall, it was a mirror. You couldn't see in, but he could see out. And uh, him and Priscilla and Red and all the, you know, Red West, all his buddies from high school, a bunch of rednecks that they called the Memphis Mafia, just a bunch of street fighters. That was his security team. Anyway, um, he liked the song and next week he recorded it. He had just gotten out of the army. He knew what it was like. He knew what I was going through. He was a poor kid from the south, and he, he just saw a kid as a dreamer. Here's, here's the miracle that nobody knows. He told the colonel, after he had me come in there and tell me, like the songs, real nice to me, introduce me to everybody. He looked at the colonel, Tom Parker, and said, don't take the kid's publishing. I didn't know what a publishing was. I didn't know you published songs. I thought you wrote them and sung them you know but whoever owns the publishing gets paid and whoever's supposed to get paid usually doesn't it's funny money (laughs) so that was about a three million dollar sentence that he spoke to the colonel nobody had any way of knowing you know but i mean that that royalty check still pays my rent every month after all these years
2: Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, I would be drifting like a ship without.
0: I didn't actually write one specifically with somebody in mind. I just wrote whatever. Every song to me was like a miracle. And I was always amazed at the process, even though I sat down and made myself available. And even though I didn't understand spiritual things at the time, I was a Christian. And and what I mean by that is, I trusted God enough to give him my problems. Whatever I was failing at, Whatever I was ashamed of, I made Jesus the Lord of that. I gave him my sins. I didn't want to go to hell, obviously. But I didn't give him my life. I mean, if I thought I was doing good at something, I didn't even pray about that. I just, I only talked to. if the car is spinning on the ice at 70 miles an hour, oh Jesus, you know, we immediately asked for help. Most of life, I just did what I thought was the best. And when I had a train wreck, I asked God for help and that was Christianity in me. I never read the Bible. I only went to church because my daddy was bigger than me. And as soon as I got out of the house, I didn't. I had made a decision early on. My granddaddy was the pastor, and it was a Pentecostal church, and it was a wild, we called it the Christian Olympics. I mean, on Sunday, it was, when my granddaddy got the rhythm going, bless God, I'm going to heaven You know, once he started that, then, running guy took off and screaming guy jumped up and started whooping and and a chicken woman started clapping her wings and (laughs) popping her neck. And it was on. And when it was on, it was that man for himself. If you were five years old, like I was, you just wanted, your prayer was that nobody would land on you this Sunday. (laughs) But if you grew up asking the obvious questions, If I give my life to Jesus, am I going to have to do the chicken and take off running and land on kids and scare kids? You know, just obvious questions that you would ask at seven or eight or nine. The answer was constantly changing, but the bottom line is nobody knew the answer, including my own granddaddy, and he's the preacher. If your mama, if it's her daddy who's the preacher, you're sitting on the front row every time the door opens. And you're watching all these people and they're going through all these prayer meetings where they pray all night and they, and they, well, oh, Jesus, <laughs> and they cry for hours. And and I just watched all this. And every time I would ask a question, like, if somebody that I knew all about, I knew their life, I knew what they did on Sunday, but I also knew what they did on Friday night. So I'm going up thinking, okay, if I give my whole life to this, And I don't do all the stuff they say not do, which is, I mean, it was a very legalistic church. The women couldn't cut their hair. Do you know how long your hair gets if you don't cut it for 20 years? You have, they they wore these things called beehives or buns, and they just wrapped it around their head and it got longer and longer. I mean, it it was, dude, there wasn't enough hair, there wasn't enough hairspray in Texas to keep it up there. So they used these things called bobby pins. They were sincere people, but they were sincerely Confused and they were they were sincerely deceived in a lot of areas They just they put all this emphasis on being holy But it had something to do with how you wear your I mean My mother couldn't wear a ring because to show that she was my daddy's wife Because it was jewelry and hussies wore jewelry and makeup. She couldn't wear makeup Dude, Do you really want to marry a? I I mean the girls that I had available to me in high school needed some makeup, bruh
2: Seeing me like I was Having to admit I was Slowly dying Blinded by the way I am Searching for the way I am Still trying No longer by the rainbow blind I have found peace of mind And I can see
0: I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He personally communicated with me in ways that I can't explain. But because I never read the Bible, and if your granddaddy is the preacher and he doesn't know the Bible, if your teacher has a third grade education, dude, you ain't getting the fourth grade education. And so what we got was a whole bunch of screaming and hollering and he preached against liquor because he had been a drunk and he preached against, you know, the obvious stuff. How many times can you preach on you shouldn't shoot people and rob banks and sleep around and you know what I mean? But what he didn't preach was the love of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness, the gentleness, the faithfulness. So the bottom line is, I just didn't get God. I got out of church. They didn't want anything to do with my music. They had nothing to do with me. As soon as I got out of the army, the reason I joined the army was because they were going to shave my head and I wanted to get that over with. I was going to grow me some hair and I was going to uh, be a musician. When I would do a song, it was well accepted. And that was intimidating to my father. My father was really good at a certain kind of music. He was he's from Tennessee and his, his brother and his sister had been the original Lefevre trio and it was bluegrass. But the music that I was coming along with, sometimes they were ballads, sometimes they were country flavored, but they were more contemporary. There was a new kind of music, ev- you know, that was developing. Nobody in our family had ever written, And all of a sudden I was writing these songs and these songs were becoming very popular and I was making more money than the, old, the Elvis cut. My first check was, for one check, was worth more money than my father had made in the last five years, put together. So all of a sudden he was being intimidated by something that he thought was gonna push him out and I thought it was just gonna make another generation of fans for our family that's all i was trying to do was do something that they couldn't do but after Elvis cut that tune i didn't let my hair go real long but i let it grow too long for my dad and i had sideburns down to about here my dad told me i think i was 23 or something he told me i had to cut my sideburns to take a picture with the family and i told him i was old enough to make a decision how long my sideburns were and he said well not in this band and that was it i said okay uh, came uh, to the rhythm section, got my buddies together, and we started doing demos. Alan Toussaint came to Atlanta. He had a band he was producing at our studio called uh, The Meters. Um, The Neville brothers and The Meters were the same band. And he brought them both in and made some records there. And my brother played him. I, I was on the road. My brother played him some of our demos, and he took it and sold it. When I came home he offered me 80 grand at that time was like a billion dollars. He offered me 80 grand for the master. Found out later on they got a quarter mil but you know I got 80 grand and I was thrilled. The first album I did, most of the I got down on my hands and knees and played the drums with my hands. I played a kick drum, the whole song through. I went back and played the snare one at a time, put in the fools. It took me all night one night, but I did the track on a song, and then I played the bass to it, and then I played a little rhythm guitar, and then I had to start getting buddies in that were good enough. You know, I could play two, two notes on the organ on the B3 and on the piano and it took forever, but I made records that way in the beginning, but it, was, it wasn't it was to be on a record label and it wasn't for fame or fortune. It was to show somebody, this is the dream. So if you want to take a, a few minutes and go on a dream with me, this is it. But if you don't want to go on this dream, please leave it alone. I don't want you beating up my kids. These are, you know, if you love your kids, I don't care how ugly they are. No, no mother has ever said, "Boy, that kid's ugly." (laughs) It's your kid. It's a beautiful kid, you know. I wrote some horrible songs, but I liked them all. You know, he knows where
2: you've been. He knows what you've done.
0: Song on there called Who Knows? Well, that was one of the first real rock and roll. I mean, we did a bunch of stuff, but a lot of it was ballads and some of it was country flavored. And
1: Peace Begins Within, that song is one of my favorite songs ever.
0: Wow. Each note was played by a different instrument. You wouldn't have known that unless you were there. The bass hit a note, the guitar player. The keyboard hit a note, the organ, you know, it went from pint, it went from clavichord to B3 to the other guitar player and then the drum. It went around the room, it was pretty funky. Yeah. To, to, for it to be that tight, that was a good band.
1: Go from that record, which was not, there was no Christian music industry, there was our Christian rock or contemporary Christian music industry at all when, no. when you did that. But you said you really didn't have a, a relationship with God. You didn't have a, I faith. Had a relationship.
0: It was just a kindergarten relationship, but I didn't know it. I thought that's what Christians were. Christians had a lot of hope, but um, I didn't even know what faith is. You know, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God and I did not have faith. If you have faith in God, you trust Him. You're not hoping that His Word is true, you believe it. There's a huge difference. The thing that changed my life was learning the difference in believing there is a God. Everybody that's a Christian believes there's a God, but there's a huge difference in believing there is a God and believing God. God says by His stripes you were healed, and the doctor says you got cancer, what do you believe? I'm talking about if God Almighty says, I am Jehovah Rapha, I am the God that heals you. And He says, I sent my word and healed them. My word is life to those that find it and health to all their flesh. Do you really believe that the word of God will heal you? When you start out making music and you're a kid, you're in trouble in a lot of ways. You don't know what's going on. It's like like learning about sex when you're a teenager. Are you really going to find out the facts by talking to people in the locker room? Because they don't know either. And the bottom line is, what's going to happen if you're a Christian, if you accept Jesus Christ and you believe according to the Word, you believe He's the Son of God, you believe that God raised Him from the dead, and you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, That is wonderful, that is the truth, that'll get you to heaven. But that does not mean that it won't be hell to pay on the way. You can live for 60 or 80 years and have the most miserable life on the earth and be a born again on your way to heaven Christian. But if you ignore God and don't have any wisdom, the Bible says wisdom's the principal thing. So without wisdom, and what is wisdom? Is wisdom that I am smart? Am I an intellectual giant and I comprehend well and and I am discerning and, and I am uh, street savvy? It means that God's word is true and I believe him. And so everything I do in my life is filtered. Every thought, every word, that I speak, every action I take, and every reaction. I believe with all my heart that as a Christian lives, they get tested. We find out what we really believe. If God's Word says, Give, and it, it'll be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, men are given to your bosom. I have a choice. If I'm broke because I chose not to give anything and not to support the kingdom of God, I mean, that first 10% of my first fruits, that is not a suggestion, that is God saying. In fact, he didn't say, give it to me. He said, bring it to me, it's mine. He said, bring the tithe in the storehouse, which which is somewhere in the kingdom. You know, my wife and I try to find ministries that are producing life. Man, people are getting born again, marriages are getting fixed, bodies are getting healed. The fruit of the love of God, you know. I, I try to avoid people that are building buildings and. And being theological and I try to find people who are down in the ditches doing the dirty work, you know. Jesus, he is a way maker.
2: Jesus, he is a way maker. Jesus, he is a way. Dream. He came and he answered my prayer. One day, Jesus made a way for me. I know he made a way for me. Jesus, he is a way maker. Jesus, he is a way maker. Jesus, he is a way maker. One day he made a way for me. Yeah, My life was dark and dream. He came and he answered my prayer. One day, Jesus made a way for me. Made a way for me. One day the sun refused to shine in that simple heart of mine, I prayed both night and day that my sailor would make my way, and he answered me then and there, came and answered my humble prayer, and one day Jesus made a way for me, now, I know he made a way for me, Jesus, he is a way maker, Jesus, he is a way maker.
0: When we started out on this journey, I didn't have a clue what was about to happen. All of a sudden, I had Jimmy Swaggart and David Wilkerson telling me, well, all these bad things you did. Hey, when they were 20 years old, if they had been in George Harrison's castle and a good-looking groupie came up to them that was five years older than them, who knew all kind of stuff they didn't know. All I'm saying is the things that were available backstage at a concert with the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead and Sly and the Family Stone and Hendrix and Joplin. I mean this, I was there back in the day. Cocaine was like bubble gum backstage. I mean it was everywhere and and heroin. So the world was different then. It was a crazy time and we got in a bunch of trouble. What we found out was, what do we really believe and who do we really believe? And what we found out was we believed in ourselves and we believed in the gift that God had given us. If we had a talent and people liked what we did, we believed in that. You know, Jesus said this one time, you can't serve two masters, it's me or money. He didn't even mention the devil. He said, it's me or money. One of these two things is going to master you. You're either going to spend the rest of your life trying to find out who I am and how I do things, and you're going to change constantly for me, or you're going to be mastered by your desire that I get more. And you believe that money will make your life better. And if you do, if you believe that it'll help your your kids and your wife and your more than me, How many Christians do you know that are good people? I'm not finding any fault with them. I've only got one that I got to judge and keep the log out of these eyes. I mean, they called it gospel music when I was a kid, before we changed it. But I was there and I can tell you, man, that there was a whole lot of drinking and a whole lot of carousing. In other words, gospel music was, was it gospel or was it music? For a lot of them, it was a showtime business. And you went out there and you made some money and you got on your bus and went home in your fancy suits. And we wouldn't have known Jesus if he'd have got on the bus. I just grew up in the middle of all this tons of religious crap saying, Jesus, what's real? If you'll just communicate with me and make it stupid proof, I'll do anything for you. I know I need you. I know I don't have it together. I wouldn't say this publicly, but I'll say it to you. Well, I might say it publicly, but I haven't. I knew all four of the Beatles, so I'm not. I'm not talking about somebody who read books about them. I'm talking about going to their house, spending time with them. It's not the same if you if you bought a record by George Harrison. It's not the same as going over to his house and he handed me the guitar and said, "Play me one of yours." Wow. And I played him one of mine, and he liked it and i'm thinking are you kidding me i'm sitting here in a room that the ceiling is five stories tall when he went out of the room i walked off the fireplace i, I got up and walked it off with my tennis shoes and it was 21 feet wide <laughs> just the fireplace the, the two staircases going like uh gone with the wind went up five stairs uh five floors just go into that world and I just can't explain it.
2: and two of working on. Yeah.
1: step away from this special conversation with Milan Lefevre for just a moment, but we'll be right back.
0: Hey, this is Ray, Patreon backer of True Tunes, reminding you that there are a few things you can do that both help True Tunes and should be good for you too. First, make sure to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com so they don't have to pay the middlemen to send you information. Next make sure to leave a review and rating at Apple Podcasts if you hadn't done so yet. Also, find and follow that Spotify mix that John curates for us every week. You don't want to miss it. Also, if you can support the show on a monthly basis, join me and the other backers at patreon.com truetunes, or consider making a one-time gift via the PayPal link on the show notes page. Lastly, make sure to tell your friends about the show personal word of mouth is definitely the best marketing. Thanks for listening. And we're back. amazed that I got through that because the world has a lot to offer. Christians sometimes tell themselves, oh the world has nothing to offer me. Well they weren't there. They didn't get the offer because it was quite dazzling to this young kid. When I actually gave my life to Jesus, it was at a second chapter of Acts concert in 1980. I had built up such a tolerance to heroin by that point it took so much to get me back. I mean the first time you do heroin you're so high but you won't ever get that high again. You, you're chasing that one the rest of your life. And you build up a tolerance, which means it takes more and more and purer and purer to get you to that place. You can get there, but it takes a lot. They found me one time in England, You know, put that band together with Alvin Lee, George Harrison, Ronnie Wood from The Stones, Steve Winwood from Traffic on B3, Reebok, the percussionist for Traffic on percussion, Mick Fleetwood and. And uh, Ian Wallace was the drummer for King Crimson, so they were our two drummers. We had Boswell from Bad Company on bass, and me and Alvin, George and, and Woody and, and Steve. That was a good band. We were touring Europe and we were getting ready to do, it wouldn't was, been the first of what they called supergroups later on. And I OD'd before we could get to America. And they found me with a cigarette. I used to smoke and the cigarette was burning down and it was burning my fingers and they smelt my flesh burning. That's how close I was to hell. And they woke me up and shook me and got the cigarette off of me. and I got to breathing again, but I didn't get oxygen to my brain for a few seconds. I don't know how long, minutes maybe, I don't know. That was sort of the beginning of the end, which saved my life, actually. Take the dawn of the day. I went to the second chapter of that Concert and I was so strung out. I was dying, I knew I didn't have long. Now I asked God for help and I I can't remember the prayer, but I do remember it was real short and it was basically, I believe they got the real thing. I was watching these guys for a while. And uh, so I started asking questions and they were great questions. <laughs> and he started cheering Jesus with me. So when I would get in trouble, I'd get, you know, uh, I'd call Buck in the middle of the night and ask him to pray and he seemed to care and so when i realized i got to either give my life to jesus or die he was the one i called uh, he invited me to a concert they did and i went to the concert and i was watching them and i was thinking i think they got the real thing and i told god i don't know how to get here to there but man if you'll help me i don't know if i thought this or said it i remember thinking if he don't want me i'm gonna pull the trigger because I, I can't do this anymore i had come from being a millionaire to couldn't even remember my songs and i didn't have a record deal anymore i was in no man's land between christian music and rock and roll i read DeGarmo's book and we i talked to him recently i know they got some persecution but believe me that they weren't around in real rock and roll i mean they were you know they were a local bar band uh, garage band when I was playing to 30,000 people, right. 20,000 people every night. And the bottom line is, when the people came after us, when Swagger and Wilkerson and people like that came after us, they came after whoever was most visible. And I was more their age. And I just made them mad. So I took a lot of the blow, the blunt of that. I remember that I couldn't trust in them. When I decided I wanted to give my life to Jesus, who was I going to go to and pray with me? You know so i found these guys and i thought oh, yeah i can relate to them a little bit and i asked god I'm, I'm ready but you know i need help here and i think that's all i pray just if you'll help me i'll do this and i will surrender my ego and my pride because i realized the problem is not just the devil miles my, my biggest problem you know i thought i was a stud house and i i was arrogant and i was just a fool i was a liar i was a adulterer, I was a manipulator, just a disgusting, and I was a father. I always made sure my child had plenty, I wasn't there. What she didn't have was a, a loving Christian father helping set an example. So I was just a horrible person and Jesus wanted my life. He took my life that night and he let me start over. I went to church the next day, my pastor gave me a job as a janitor. I quit making eight or ten thousand dollars a day in a band and started making hundred and seventy five dollars a week cleaning the toilet. Well,
2: I cannot take it, I cannot make it, I will not fake it again. Cause I've been so tired of feeling so wild, not ever fired up within. Oh, I just need revival in my soul. Won't you please come and take control?
0: Because I made some money, I lived in the neighborhood where there were a lot of professionals, doctors, lawyers, you know, it was a wealthy neighborhood. So it was a big church, had a lot of resources, They had uh, alcoholics, Not I never was an alcoholic, but I went there because it, it, I needed to be someplace. If everybody you know in your life has been stoned for 20 years, and you don't get stoned anymore, you don't have anybody to hang out with. So I went to church literally every day. I went to an old folks' they had this meeting, and everybody's like seventy. And uh, they, but I just hung around. You know, I just went. They, it was a Bible study. So I went on Wednesday night. They had regular church. Sunday they had regular church. On Thursday night they had a college and young singles class. I wasn't in college, and everyone to college. I wasn't single, but I went to that. And uh, I think Friday night was the only night they didn't have something. And I stayed home and that was a hard night for me because I didn't know what to do myself. I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life. Somebody gave me one of those green Bibles, the living Bible. And it didn't have any these or thous in it. And it didn't have any uh, words that you couldn't look up in the dictionary. And I started to understand it for the first time. And I just loved that, man. I mean, I, I started to ask questions I went to this Bible school they had and and this old guy that knew the Bible better than any of us would let us ask questions after the meeting and that was the best thing that ever happened. Then he would tell me where it was in the Bible and I'd write it down then I would go later and I'd read the whole chapter so I'd make sure that I had it in context. And somebody told me, I can't remember which one, I think my pastor told me, if you read 10 chapters, and I didn't have a job other than being a janitor and I hated that job, you know, um, so 10 chapters a day you know, is just an hour or so. If you read 10 chapters a day, you will read the whole Bible twice a year. And I did that for seven years every day. And it changed my whole life. It changed the way that I look at life and the way I interpret the chaos around me. And The, the band was doing pretty good the year that he called me out of it, 93. We were headlining well, not everywhere, but wherever we wanted to. We, we had the biggest PA. That was one of the things that helped. We made a deal with P V. Hartley P V owned the PV company. And so we made a deal with Hartley to do R and D. Anything that they put in research and development, we would take it on the road. And they had these geniuses in there creating stuff, man. And they were on the they were on the front of the curve at digital. They would have these geniuses. They made a microphone, a wireless microphone that you could use on stage, but they put the mute button right where you hold it. These guys were geniuses, but they had never been on stage. So right. they would do dumb stuff, you know, and you'd take it out there and you, know, you would obviously, couldn't sell it. You'd be muting yourself by accident all the time. So we took everything they made. They made us special guitars, they made us drums, digital drums. They made us uh, keyboards, but they made us a 60,000 watt digital PA. You could hear it for a mile and a half when we set up at a festival. And that helped a lot of the promoters who didn't really think we were their favorite headliner still wanted the best PA at their, you know. And if we came, they got to use ours. If we didn't, they had to rent one. So they paid us more for supplying lights and PA.
2: See the black on white so don't look for gray.
1: Why did you transition out when you were right at the top of all that?
0: I was sitting at home one night praying, it was a snowstorm in Georgia. The only one, I lived there 50 years, 52 years. The only snowstorm where the, it actually was over a foot deep. I mean, when it snowed in Georgia, it usually if the grass got white, they canceled school, you know right. what I mean? So, you know, we had this snowstorm and the electricity was out and there was no heat. So I'm sitting in there in the middle of the night, I couldn't get to sleep with no TV, no phones, just two days, three days. And I was praying, you know, you're talking to God, but you don't really expect him to say anything. You're just talking to him about what's, you know, your life. And all of a sudden he just downloaded this, uh, you could call it a conversation, but he just communicated with me. I believe I'm still receiving information but basically, the very beginning of what he said that night was, Son, I know who understands because I'm the one that reveals myself to him, And I know who has pursued me and who has asked. He said, ask me, I'll show you great and mighty things that you know not of. He said, the ones who have asked, I, reveal. I give them those great and mighty things. I do reveal stuff to them. And he said, I know who understands. And since wisdom is the principal thing and the Bible says that in your pursuit of wisdom, you should pursue understanding, which is just the practical application of the Word of God to your everyday life. He said, to whom much is given, much is required. And because of that, I'm requiring you now to teach my word. And I did not know what that meant. But the way he put it to me was, I'm calling you to be a student teacher and he went on to say I want you to teach what you know and understand but I want you to learn what you don't and that will always be your first pursuit seeking comes before sharing I mean once you learn something and it changes your life and you see the fruit of it and you know that's holy and you see that in the word and you understand and know it's me then teach that and share that I mean i I was a hippie if you had a good stash man you called your friend dude you better get over here this ain't gonna last till midnight you know i mean uh so if you found something really good and holy you shared that with your with whoever would listen and whoever it was like showing a friend a new song you know that's what happened that was march of 1993 and I took the band off the road. Our last gig was July of 93 at Jesus Northwest out in Vancouver, Washington.
2: At
1: that
0: point in my life, I won Grammys and Doves, and I wrote the songs. I was the publisher, I was the artist, the only thing left is if I owned the record company. I couldn't do any more. In order to write 10 good songs, good enough to be on a record, you gotta write about 60, 50 at least. You do that once a year, then you do a video once a year, and you gotta write, and I was, I love the creative part more than the going out on the road and doing it. So being involved in learning, and by the way, now that I'm doing my own TV show, believe me, that was, I was in Holy Ghost School. I did not know it, but I was learning stuff I needed to know uh, about the technology and the uh, creative process. But um, I could have had a record company, they offered me one, I I, I thought about it, but I just couldn't manage anymore. I I made the decisions on whether we took a date or not. You know, the booking agents told me what we were gonna do and what we had offers. And at times, I'd have to go back and tell them, no, you know, I mean, I got, I had 25 employees. And, you know, in the summertime, you do the festivals and do really good. But uh, in the wintertime, there'd be times when you had to take a month or two off to go in the studio. And so you're paying 25 employees while I'm in the studio, which puts more pressure on you. I got to write a hit. Now, when we first made that first album, we did nothing for money it was all for fun and we had our whole lives of writing i probably had i probably had 100 songs to choose from for my first album but once you start churning out one a year and then you tour on it and then you do i mean it it became work it became took all the joy out of it
1: The Christian music world became so much about the church that it became almost impossible for the music to get out of the church and actually impact the world. And so... It was the
0: other way for me. Most of the Christian bands, like Striper, those guys were all trying to break out into rock and roll. I was going the opposite direction. I had already been out there, I knew it'd kill you, I knew how dangerous it was. Those guys wanted to get in the lines then. I had almost died and I got I escaped the lands, my Lord. I wanted to tell them about Jesus, but I wanted to surround myself with Christians. I did not have anybody in my band that wasn't a strong Christian. If they didn't pray with me, they didn't play with me. If they didn't, we did a daily Bible study on the road. We did one hour a day of Bible study before every single gig together. And I mean, roadies and all. I mean, you know, my son-in-law, if Peter and them didn't come to the Bible study, they didn't get to go on stage. When they first came to America, I'm the one that put them, I'm the one that got them a record deal and helped them get going. The reason that we annoyed the pastors and the preachers so much is because you know from the get-go my attitude is we don't perspire. If you want to be in a band that perspires go work for Amy. We sweat. This is rock and roll. And we did worship and praise at the appropriate time but if you start off a set with praise then the unsaved people it's immediately us and them. Unstate people can't in enter into praise and worship. They, who are they gonna? What are they going to praise? It was a party. We started out rocking, you know, and then party and boogie and dance a little bit. And then later on, we would tell them why we were there and we would share what's changed our life and we would make it as unreligious as possible. And then we would give them an opportunity to accept not Jesus as your savior. I learned that I had never had Jesus as my Lord. I had never submitted to God one time in my life. Submission was a dirty word. My daddy made me submit. The army made me submit. My teachers told me what to do. My sergeant told me what to do. My coach told me what to do. And I did not want anybody else telling me once I became a man. You know, you want to tell me what to do, you're going to have to duke it out with me. So all of a sudden I realized if I don't trust God enough to submit to him, then i have a phony relationship if god says son i love you and if you do this it'll hurt you but if you do this i'll be able to really bless you and i'm in control of everything i can open doors that no man can close but i also can close some and it doesn't matter how bad you want to go through that door nobody on the earth can open that door and so i realized the favor of god is what makes being a christian fun or not if you're kicking the devil's butt every day, being a Christian is great fun. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're seven feet tall and you can go up and dunk on anybody anytime, you got big hops, playing basketball is really fun. But if you can't dribble and you can't shoot and you get dunked on all day, it's a miserable life. That's the way, being a Christian, if you grow up in Christ, in other words, when it looks like the word is not working, that's called a test. James, the half brother of Jesus, said is anybody having any trials and tribulations? Anybody having is it really getting bad and hard? He said this, rejoice. I remember the first time I read that, I was thinking, Are you are you kidding? It all hells just broke loose, and I'm supposed to rejoice. And he said, Yeah, rejoice. It's only the testing of your faith. In other words, well, you know what a test is. You can pass a test or fail a test. God already knows who trusted. It's to let you know if you trust him. And what I found out was, no. And until I started doing what he told me, the way he told me, with a good attitude, I had never trusted For instance, Joel Osteen's daddy, John Osteen, had a big church in Houston. And we went down there to do a gig at the Coliseum, Sam Houston Coliseum. And we had over 900 people give their life to Jesus that night. Here's what I explained to them before I gave an invitation. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master? Do you let Him talk? Every Christian begs God for what they want. They spend most of the time in their relationship with God where they do the talking. So basically, we're telling God what we want, which He already knows. We're telling Him our problems, which He already knows. So we're wasting God's time and hours talking about stuff that is the problem or we can let god do that we can read the bible and let god do the talking and we get the solution so i was trying to explain to those kids don't just go to a youth group and listen to my band or anybody else's that ain't christianity jesus said they'll know you belong to me if you love each other but we're more likely to find fault with each other and put each other down and judge each other. I love to tangle with those religious characters who find fault with everybody but themselves.
2: Holy spirit free Gently overflow my call Touch my eye let me see me and Oh,
0: If you're here for the money, there ain't any. Compared to rock and roll, are you kidding me? During the time that I had Broken Heart together, I paid for the bus, I paid for the truck. I borrowed $2 million against my state to build the studio. You know, we, built, we had 25 offices. We had a place where we could park our bus and truck inside. We had a room for working on all the lighting equipment. The place had pits where you could get under the semi and the bus and work on the bus in the truck. We had a place where we had 250 seat auditorium for our Bible study every Tuesday night when we were in town. And we invited all the musicians from other bands and local churches. I, I led a lot of rockers to Jesus at that Bible study. I said all that to say, I have spent since 1980 trying to say to anybody who would listen, doing good things is different than teaching the word. Jesus said, here's the great commission, go in all the world and teach and preach and make disciples. Disciples means we don't just pat everybody on the head and tell them all it's okay, whatever they do. It's not. If you disagree with God and you don't trust him enough to obey him, you're not gonna have the same quality of life and the people that trust him obey him and that is a personal thing you can't get into other people's obedience that's between them and God. If somebody does or doesn't I don't judge that that's none of my business but my business is to teach you'll be doing yourself a great favor to trust God enough to do what his word says. If his word says don't be unequally yoked and you marry your boyfriend anyway because he's good looking and he's got his family's got a lot of money and he's got the coolest car in town and he makes you feel all fluttered when you walk in the room yeah, He's going to wake up with the Hulk one day. You know, you mentioned a while ago what, what happened when I, in 1980 when I gave my life to Jesus. Yeah, I was real serious about serving him, but I didn't know anything about how to do it. I had no wisdom, no uh, experience with that. Everybody wanted me to come and testify and tell all the means, dumb. They want to talk about Elvis and the Beatles. They didn't want to talk about Jesus. They wanted me to come and testify, they wanted me to play some cool songs, they wanted me to get out of the way. Draw them a crowd and get out of the way. And I realized the hardest thing there is to do on this earth is to make a disciple.
2: Get up, train up in the sky Sit down and listen to the sound Feel up, stand on holy ground Look up, the train's up in the sky Train up in the sky Can you feel it? You train, train up in the sky Can you see it? You train see up it? in the sky
0: appreciate you respectfully allowing me to ramble and <laughs> sometimes holy things are hard to discuss. And while we've been talking because of your reverence for these things and your serious attitude, it relaxed me and allowed me to go ahead and say some things I probably wouldn't have tried to say. I'm a blessed man. I'm financially blessed. Um, i got 500 and almost 600 songs recorded so i'm getting royalties so the good part of that is not that i have some money the good part of that is if you don't need any you don't think about it once you start giving it away it doesn't master you anymore because you know if i wanted a new car i could buy it but i'm really like the one i got and contentment is an amazing thing because nothing can tempt you if you've already been out there and had all the toys then you realize they didn't make me happy money doesn't solve problems it just gives you options so it gives you an opportunity to say what is important now and what can be accomplished in these last of the last days before jesus returns i just got a script today it's called the road to freedom i just got it today the guy james reardon the guy who wrote it is a he was with Rolling Stone magazine back in the day. Anyway, he's working with Stone, who did the JFK, Oliver Stone, and they got this kid, Bo Bice. They're talking to him about playing the part. But I just said that to say this they've already told me there's going to be cussing in it. You can't have rock and roll without sex and drugs and rock and roll, you know. And if they're going to do my life, there's going to be some bad and ugly. It ain't going to be all good. But if they pussyfoot around with Jesus, if they just make it about me, they've missed the whole point. And I'll, I'll let them do. I don't care. I only told you I'm blessed because if you have everything you want, there's nothing you're hoping to get. And I'm in a unique situation. God's really blessed me to where I don't really care what they do as long as they are respectful to the things of God those things that are holy uh, if they trash me it's not uh, you know it's not that big a deal I've almost gained
2: my my spirit loudly sing those holy angels behold they come i hear the sound of
1: As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I have several memories of Mylan, mostly as a kid in a crowd at Cornerstone or any of several shows in the Chicago area. But the one memory that really stands out as being particularly formative for me was when a missionary from the Slavic Gospel Association, a group that smuggled Bibles into the former Soviet Union and was based just a few blocks down the street from the religious bookstore that I got my first job at as a music buyer, asked if there was any way we could help him get in touch with Milan, He was coming to town to play at Wheaton College and this missionary, who I recall was himself a refugee from Russia, wanted to interview him so that his testimony could be played on a video that would be smuggled in. The audio would be played on a radio signal broadcast across the border and a transcription of it would be used in printed materials. We called the label who connected us with Milan's manager and he very quickly responded and agreed to do the interview. Then they invited me to come and watch. I think I was about 16 when all of this happened. The missionary had to be kept off camera to protect his identity, and I sat back in the shadows and listened as he asked questions in Russian, which were translated for Milan, who gave very sincere and passionate answers, which were then translated back into Russian. When the conversation was complete and the cameras and tape recorders were turned off, Milan and the missionary stood and chatted a bit more and Mylon was very excited to think that this was going to reach people behind the Iron Curtain. As we were all leaving, he asked, Where's the kid that set this up? Which was definitely more than I had done. The missionary pointed to me and Mylon gave me a big pat on the back and a hearty thanks. He told me that it was important work. I felt 10 feet tall. I would see Mylon often at shows around Chicago. His music began to seem more and more slick as my tastes got more and more edgy. Sometimes I may have wondered about the efficacy of his simple messages as I was seeking more complicated and nuanced artistic and theological wranglings, but then I'd watch the crowd and see the impact he had on people. I started to realize that maybe everything didn't have to be about me. Maybe my tastes and sensitivities and even my convictions weren't the most important things in the world. Maybe being a facilitator of experiences for other people could even be more meaningful than pursuing my own experiences all the time. Mylon once told me he didn't really care much about theology, he just wanted to talk about Jesus. I figured he must have a different definition of theology than I did because whenever we talk about God or think about God, we're doing theology. I think he meant he just wanted to keep it simple, and I can appreciate that. I told him I wished that Christian musicians didn't all feel pressured to have to preach, since a lot of them clearly didn't have that gift, and he laughed and agreed and basically said that he didn't like preaching either, he just liked to share his story and talk about the Bible. <laughs> I'll tell you what though, when he got up there it sure sounded like preaching to me. In fact, in a lot of ways, Mylon kind of sounded like what I imagined Elvis might have sounded like if he had landed more in the realm of full-time church music, and who knows, if Elvis had lived, he very well might have. If rock and roll was born of the tension between Saturday night and Sunday morning, it seems Elvis stuck with those darker hours while Mylon lived to watch the sun come up. There's one thing Mylon said in our conversation that really stands out, The hardest thing there is to do on this earth is to make a disciple. I wish I could go back and sit with him on that a bit longer. I believe he's right because making a disciple is a lifelong process. It's not a decision someone makes one time and then moves on. A disciple decides to follow a master, dedicated to replicating that master's skill and practices. When we become disciples, it requires us to change our priorities, our agendas, our ideas, and even the prejudices of which we may not be aware. Now that's hard. For some, it's impossible. I may not have landed in the same place as Milan when it comes to some aspects of our theology, But I sure appreciate his commitment, his passion, his good nature, his heart, his love of people and of course his simple focus on Jesus, who is love. I'll take this one step further. It's relatively easy to dismiss people with whom we disagree or whose music drifts from our own personal preferences when we are distant from them. But when we get up close, even just close enough to hear them in their own voice, hopefully disdain is harder to come by. It was good for me to reconnect with Mylon. I'm glad I had the chance while there was still time. So long, Mylon. You will be missed, but not forgotten. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks again to Peter Furler for setting up the conversation, to Eddie DeGarmo, and of course, to Milam LeFevre. I also want to send a special shout-out to our Patreon backers. We could not do this without your help and support. If you would like to join the group, head over to patreon.com truetunes, or if you'd like to give us a one-time gift, you can find the PayPal link on the show notes page. And thank you for doing all the other stuff, leaving us the ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the weekly Spotify mixtape, and signing up for our email list. For more information and links, including a list of every song used on this episode, check out the show notes page at truetoons.com slash and please, if you would, spread the word about the show and help us get it out there. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production editing and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. Our theme song is a special instrumental mix of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul, The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at jjt at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to look up because we believe that peace begins within.
2: Some glad morning when this life is old I'll fly away to a land on God's celestial show.